This morning is Sunday, August 14th, and our message this morning is in the bag. In the bag. You know the phrase in English, if something's in the bag, if you're in sales, what does it mean, David, if something's in the bag? It's a sure thing. The deal is closed. Well, we're going to look at a little different use of in the bag today. You can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 17. If you happen to be in the Thompson chain, you will find 1 Samuel 17 on page 319. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. If you're not in the Thompson chain. You all with me in 1 Samuel 17? I want to read to you about a problem that Israel faced. A problem that Israel faced that was enormous in scope and size. Now, I read my children Bible stories at night, and I did that every day that Judah was old enough to sit and listen to me. And I, I recently, <laughs> recently realized that I had not been doing that with my second son. And to some extent, I've eaten the fruit of that in my life. <laughs> and so I have, like Josiah, do you all know who Josiah is? Josiah was an eight-year-old king that during his reign they found the book of the law, right? Can you imagine Israel, the keeper of God's Word, and they had lost the book of the law? You can read about that sometime in uh, 2 Kings 22 or 23, right in there. And they found the book of the law. Well, I feel like in my own life it never left my life. But at some point I faded out of reading these stories to my children every night. And it happened around the addition of a second child. And after a while, I feel like Josiah where I found the book of the law again because I'm reading to my second son these stories, reading to him about Josiah, reading to him about Gideon, David, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Samuel, all of these people. And his eyes are lighting up. He's so excited. He runs and gets his Bible with pride. And he runs in and he says, read to me. And then he begs for another one. In the Hebrew culture, if you wanted to teach children, one of the things that they did is they took biblical honey, which usually was the drippings from ripened fruit or figs, and they rubbed it on the gums of children before they read the Word. From the time they were babies, before they read them the Bible, they would rub it on their gums so that the Word would be sweet to them in their mouth. They would associate the Bible with something good. I figured you'd get mad at me if I rubbed on your gums this morning, so... Trust me, this is sweet, this is good, and I want to share it with you today. This problem that Israel faced was enormous in size. Many times in the Old Testament we see, uh, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, I'm trying to every once in a while throw in a word there that you can take by association to be your own. Tanakh is the Old Testament. Law is Torah. Those are words you should learn to familiarize yourselves with. Uh, Cass, if you're writing that down, it's T-A-N-A-K-H, Tanakh. Tanakh. Many times in the Old Testament, things occur naturally that have spiritual implications. Now, that's not to say that in the natural they didn't have implications as well, but it's just an object lesson right out there, plain as, as the nose on your face, if you will. And it meant something powerful in their day and also means something powerful in our day. Well, there's probably no better story that you could start with with your kids than the story of David and Goliath. You aren't my kids today, but in teaching my children about David and Goliath, I began to see some things that I wanted to show you this morning. So let's look at Israel's problem. 
Starting in the first verse of the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched a camp at Ephes-Demim between Sokah and Azkah. Saul and the Israelite assembly camped in the valley of Elah and drew up the battle line to meet the Philistines. So if you're following the story so far, we have a king named Saul who's the king of the Israelite army and there are battle lines being drawn between the Israelite army and this Philistine army. And without getting into too much depth about the Philistines, these were a, a nomadic seafaring people that, in my mind, at least because of their description, you would think of kind of like a Viking. Okay? These, were, these were conquering, warring people. You're going to find out in this walk in the kingdom, there are battle lines all around you. You can draw battle lines in your marriage. You can draw battle lines with your neighbors. You can draw battle lines at work. You draw battle lines everywhere. And it's really important that we find ourselves on the right side of these battle lines. But we'll visit that again later. The Philistines occupied a hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Friends, Shaquille O'Neal is a big human being, is he not? You see him on TV, you can't appreciate it. I ran into him in the mall. And uh, when I was there, I was standing at a distance, maybe from this wall to that wall over there, and a woman walked up and asked for his autograph. Now, this woman was probably average height, but it appeared as if she was only waist tall to this guy. Now, this gentleman that we're reading about is at least two feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal. Look at that door frame right there. His, this guy's head would poke through the ceiling above that door frame. We're talking about a big individual. Now, this is in the natural, okay? But many of the problems that you'll face in your life will seem more than just a few feet taller than anything you've ever faced before. They just do. The nature of our revelation, the nature of our walk with God is that it is always increasing. You're supposed to know more about God today than you did yesterday. And to whom much is given, much is required. So since you know more about God tomorrow than you did today, tomorrow the trial should be bigger because you're better equipped for it. We can learn a lot from how Israel and how David dealt with this giant and these warfaring people. The champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. The shirt that the guy wore of chain mail weighed 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like that of a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. The point of the guy's spear weighed 15 pounds. Now I threw a shot in junior high and then in high school. You know, can you imagine having a spear that was heavier than a shot put? Can you imagine that? I mean, how would you throw that any distance? Must be a big, strong guy, huh? His shield bearer went ahead of him. You mean on top of all of this armor, he's got somebody with him just holding up his shield? He's got a goalie. <laughs> he's got a goalie following him around, making sure nothing gets through. 
Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, that's the king, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This is a repeating story throughout the history of Israel. Later you hear this very same thing, not in a large man standing out defying Israel, but in a large king, a king of Assyria named Sennacherib. Or in some churches they say Sennacherib. <laughs> Let you guess. Okay? And he stood outside, Sennacherib stood outside the walls of Israel or of Jerusalem during Hezekiah's day. And he, he threatened Israel. He cursed Israel's God. He cursed the people. All of these things. This is a story that repeats over and over in the Bible so that we'll begin to understand and get the message. Today you may not have a giant that you can see standing across a valley from you, threatening to kill you, hurt you, feed you to the birds of the air. But we all have problems in our lives that seem bigger than us. We all have problems that bark at us every day, tell you that you'll always be alone, tell you that nobody loves you, that all of the things that might come against you, the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's a father of lies and has been a murderer from the beginning. He's about tearing your life apart. That's what he does. You know the word adultery? We think of that. Adultery is something that is sexual. That's not what adultery it means at all in Hebrew. I mean, that's something that can cause adultery, but adultery means a terrible tearing. That's what the devil wants to do to you. That's why God accused Israel over and over and over of spiritual adultery. Because they had allowed the enemies of God to tear them away from God. We all bonded ourselves to God. We bonded ourselves to each other. Not just to your spouse, to those in the body of Christ. And the devil is about separating you. He's about hurting you and tearing you away. Now, if this was warfare, he might use a 125-pound scale armor. Or he might use a 15-pound spearhead like Goliath had. Or some guy who was over nine feet tall. But since it's not a physical battle, since it's a spiritual battle, he uses hurt feelings. He uses disappointment. He uses broken dreams. He uses doubt. He uses these things to tear you away from God, to tear you away from the body of Christ, and to tear you away from each other. But there's an appropriate response to them. Israel had this problem. The problem was there's an enormous giant over here. And when there was a problem, there was also a reward. I want to read to you about the reward, and then we'll look at this. In 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 20. In your Thompson Chain Bible, this will be on page 318. You're not in the Thompson Chain. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. Y'all there? How do you say yes in Hebrew? Ken. Yeah, K-E-N, Ken. And no is low. And thank you? Todah. The emphasis is on the end. It's Todah. Uh, 
All right, 1 Samuel 17, verse 20. The problem was a, a great big giant. Now, here's a, a reward. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed him. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. By the way, this has been going on 40 days. 40 in the Bible is often a number of testing. You know, it'd be one thing if these problems that you face in your life were one-day problems. You can endure almost anything for a few minutes, maybe for a few hours, maybe for a few days, but when they stretch months and months and months, they tend to wear you down, huh? You're more likely to react in the flesh. You're less likely to do what the Bible tells you to do, huh? So after this has been going on for a very long time, God begins to introduce deliverance. Watch. When the Israelites saw the man, they ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. If you didn't want the daughter, you sure wanted the tax exemption, right? I remember the first time Jennifer was pregnant, I, I did the math right away. I said, you know, is it possible to have this baby before December 31st? <laughs> you know, it wasn't. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him this is what will be done for the man who kills him. So we have a problem. The problem is that there's a giant and an army behind the giant and nobody in Israel wants to fight. They're all scared. They're all hiding because this guy is bigger than life. And see, there's high stakes here. Often, your problems that you face in life have high stakes to them. You know, for instance, my wife and I trying to hold a marriage together, this covenant that we have. You know what's at stake there? It's not just her feelings or my feelings anymore. It's our children. You say, oh, well, people get divorced all the time and their kids grow up fine. The reason that marriage was introduced, the fruit that God was looking from it, certainly not the only reason, but the fruit that God was looking for from the marriage, according to Malachi, was godly offspring. God doesn't just hate divorce because it hurts a husband and a wife. He hates divorce because the children don't grow up in the presence of God, which is really the job of parents. You remember the story of Samuel in the Bible? I read that one to my kids two nights ago. Samuel lived in a time period where God spoke to him. And he ran in and asked the high priest over all of the land, Hey, did you call me? No. This happened three times. Finally, the old guy says, Look, it might be God. If he, if he calls to you again, answer him. Say, Here I am. I'm your servant. It took four times. It took four times because they weren't used to hearing from God. We're supposed to be raising our children in an environment where the presence of God is commonplace. What we fought for this morning here in worship is commonplace so that it won't be a strange thing to them. That's what God's after. 
so that they will have a, a leg up on the situation as they enter into adulthood. They'll already know how to hear His voice. That's what Matthew was sharing to you about his daughter in worship. They'll already have a desire for Jesus. We're supposed to impress that upon them, Deuteronomy 6 says. The stakes are high. It's not just about marriage. The stakes are high. The salvation of your friends and loved ones. When we don't face the giants in our lives, when we run and we hide and we allow them to stay there and get bigger and bigger and bigger, the stakes are very high. So David wanted to know, well, what will be done? What will be done if I do this? Well, I'm going to get a wife. Her name was Michael. She turned out to be kind of a dud. Uh, David did fight for her, though. Uh, that's another, another whole message. A guy named Paltiel ended up on the raw end of that deal. But anyway, he, he got a wife. He, he would get uh, exempted from taxes. And most of all, he had earned the favor of the king. You keep your finger here because we're going to read most of this chapter. But I want to talk to you about this principle of a problem and a reward and where that puts us as Christians. Turn with me to Luke 14. You'll go to the New Testament, to Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke 14, if you're in a Thompson chain, everybody's going to hear this and think I'm a Bible salesman, huh? I'm not. You can have any translation you want, but if you want the benefit of page numbers, you've got to get in mind. Luke 14, starting in verse 28. This is on page 1160. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, what am I telling you? Why would I even relate those two things? Am I telling you that you can't have clothes? No, dear God, please come to church clothed. We, we appreciate that. Telling you you can't have a car? No, how would most of you have gotten here if you didn't have a car? He's not telling you that you have to give up all material possessions. Material uh, things in themselves are not bad. They can be gifts God gave you. He's telling you at any moment you have to be willing to lose anything that you have for God. He's trying to encourage people to count the cost before they follow Him. You're standing on one mountain. There's a valley between you. In the Bible, that valley is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It means the Valley of Decision. Between you and the enemy is your choice. And what you have to decide to do is come hell or high water, whether I lose everything, I will engage the enemy in battle. And there's a way that that happens and a reason. In John 16, too, Jesus warned His disciples. He said, guys, I want you to know there's a time coming where because you've chosen to follow Me, people are going to throw you out of the synagogue. They're going to beat you. They're going to kill you. And in fact, they'll think they're doing a service to God by doing it. That's not exactly how you draw a crowd to yourself, is it? You know? I heard a popular TV preacher who I listen to very rarely. But he said, well, here I stand before you in this 
grand cathedral and I'm speaking to a multitude. If you suffered like people suffer in other countries for believing in Jesus, I could preach in a pup tent next Sunday. And he was probably telling them the truth. You know, there needs to be a counting of the cost. When you decide to get into Christianity, it's an all-or-nothing sport. There is no ground for people in the middle. You can't reside in the valley. You'll become an enemy of both camps. You need to decide where you're going to stand. But there's something that helps in that decision. In fact, in Corinthians 15 and verse 30, Paul is speaking about this gospel that he preaches and all he's enduring. He said, man, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, if I faced death daily just for for this life, then I'm to be pitied more than all men. I'm like, like the village idiot on parade as a fool. That's what he said. At least I paraphrased it a little bit. In 2 Corinthians 4, he said that he faced death every day for the sake of the gospel. Well, why? Why is Israel standing on one mountain looking at this giant and counting the cost? Paul had made up his mind to follow, to follow God regardless of the cost, but why? Look at Romans 18. It'll tell you why. It's the same thing that you have to come to as far as a decision. A decision as far as your marriage, a decision as far as your children, a decision as far as what you'll do for a living, a decision as far as how you'll pick your spouse one day. Romans 8. I'm sorry, what did I tell you? Oh, that's one of those apocryphal books. <laughs> Page 1255. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul had come to a place in his life where it didn't matter. 2 Corinthians 11 teaches us that Paul was shipwrecked, that he was beaten, that he spent a day and a night in the open sea. All of these things. He decided that none of that was worth comparing with the reward that had been set before him. The reward he considered outweighed everything else. Sometimes as we're facing Goliath on the other side of the mountain, you need to look past the problem. You need to look past the cross in your life and decide that going beyond it is worth it because of the joy set before you, because of the reward on the other side. You know, you pay a high price to be right sometimes. There's a guy named Brother Albert that used to be on the radio in Baton Rouge. and Brother Albert was certainly not a master of the English language. But he did very much possess some wisdom. And it's funny because it's kind of like finding a gold bar inside of a rough-hewn box. You know, you just, it seems out of place. Albert, at, at, at best, butchered the English language and was hard to even follow it sometimes. But a point that he made one time was that you could run, or uh, you could be going down the road and your light be green. And you see a semi coming. And you continue to go because the light is green. And you are right, but you end up dead right. Sometimes the price you pay for being right is just not worth it. How many times have you gone to bed angry so that you could be right? You ever walked off a job so you could be right, only to find you were having trouble feeding yourself later? Sometimes the price you pay for being right is not worth it. We need to consider ourselves dead and Jesus in us alive. You need to decide that at all costs, you're going to do what He says is right. 
That's the only thing that you're going to fight for is for Him to be right. Let every man be considered a liar and God right. I'm going to follow Him. That is the attitude that will allow you to say whatever my present sufferings are, no matter what happens, it's not worth... I mean, it's, it's just not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in Christ. So Israel had this problem. Giant over here, valley here, and nobody wants to go fight. And then David's there. Now... Turn back with me to 1 Samuel 17. Back to page 318-319. David made up his mind. Look at verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this grace, disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is sitting there. He's contemplating it. He's, he's counting the cost. And once he's heard what would be done for him, he said, you know what? This Philistine's nothing when, it, when you think about it in terms of he's defying the armies of God. What would be done for me? And you can see faith is beginning to rise in his heart. As you embark on this Christian walk, as you set out on Pilgrim's Progress's journey, or like our message a few weeks ago, Halakha, once you take this walk step, once you're moving in faith, something always happens. You've counted the cost. You've decided, I will face down the giants because the armies of the living God are with me. You always get resistance. And resistance comes from the strangest places. We think of the enemy as being Goliath over there, right? Goliath is the problem on the other side of the valley. Goliath is the devil to the Christian, right? Isn't that what you would think? Well, before Goliath ever picked up a sword to face David, before any shots were fired, somebody else opposed him. Start in verse 32. No, not 32. 28. When Eliab... David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him. He said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. When David, when what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, Saul sent for him. Where did his very first resistance come from? You find out that Jesse had quite a few sons. And Eliab was the oldest of these sons. The first group of people to oppose David in his calling. The very first ones were not even Philistines. They were brothers, not just from his own nation, not just from his own tribe, from his own house. Those of you that have been on this Christian walk for a while can remember that one of the first things that happens when you get born again is your friends, your family begins to think, you lost your mind. Something must be wrong with you. I mean, after all, Brad will never make it in the real world thinking like that. After all, how will Matthew earn a living? I mean, nobody can really make it in the business world like this. I remember with Matthew, there was a thought he would never get married. Because, I mean, the only place you meet people is out in bars, right? Well, after Cassidy and several children, now I would say Matt's pretty married, wouldn't you? The first attack came from a guy named Eliab, 
who is David's oldest brother. Those that know you and are most acquainted with you, those that understand your weaknesses and your strengths from a purely natural standpoint are often discouraging. Do you know why they're discouraging? What was Eliab doing at this very moment? He's cowering. He's hiding. He's the oldest brother. If somebody should go fight, it should be him. I remember I was in a church one time back before King's Harvest and people were saying things like, well, I know that young guy's fired up, but I mean, he just, he needs, uh, he needs some wisdom. You know, he needs to be restrained a while. And I'm thinking, my God, if, if I'm a problem because I'm excited for Jesus, where are the Pauls in this church? Where are the men that will stand up and be the example? You're all cowering, hiding in your pews. You do nothing. You stand around and write checks and won't go across the street to tell somebody about Jesus. And why does it bother you that I do? Because they were the elder brother. They were the elder brother. They knew that they should be doing it. And it was convicting to them that they were not. Don't be surprised in your life when you go to mother-in-law, father-in-law, dad or mom and say, this problem's bigger than me. And they're discouraging about it. You're right. That problem's bigger than you. Throw that guy out. You know, quit that job. Oh, you should just declare bankruptcy. Oh, nobody should treat my baby like that. Come home, live with me. All of the things. Does that mean that Eliab was a bad guy? No, this was his little brother. He's used to watching him wipe the snot from his nose. He doesn't see him as the giant slayer that God called him to be. He sees him as the little boy. When God speaks something to you and faith begins to rise in your heart, it's rising in your heart. Not necessarily the people that are around you. In Jesus' life, was this not true? I mean, his own mama thought he was crazy. My Catholic friends don't like me to talk about that. She set out to take hold of him, Mark said, thinking him to be out of his mind. I would say that's pretty crazy. My mom's often thought I was crazy, but she never came with all of my siblings to commit me. There can be an advantage in living a long way. No, I'm teasing. My, my mom loves me and supports me in almost everything that I do. When we set out on this journey of faith, it's natural to get resistance. You're going to get it. It happens. What you need to learn to expect is that sometimes it comes from natural brothers. Sometimes it comes from false brothers. You remember in Galatians? I thought I'd read these to you and we're probably just not going to have time because I talk too much. But in Galatians 2... One through five, Paul says, man, 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 man. He said, all of these problems that I'm having are because some false brothers came from Jerusalem just to spy on the freedoms that I have in Christ. And they went back and spread this report about me. Paul was out there. He was called. you remember what Paul was called to do? He was called to bring this Hebraic Jewish message about Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, to the Gentiles of the world. And the other Jews kept sneaking around behind him saying, what are you making those Gentiles do? Eh, we don't think you're making them do it. Oh, Paul, you're a Jew and you ate with a Gentile? What's wrong with you? Just spying on him, looking for a way to discourage him. Maybe they were so upset because they knew that God had called them as well to be a light to the Gentiles. Who knows? Part of Israel's calling was to be chief among the nations, a nation of priests teaching the world about God's righteous decrees. Now, Paul's out there trying to do it. And what are his brothers in the church doing? Discouraging him. You can't really have a church in a garage, can you? I mean, Lord, there's no pews. 
It's not a steeple on that building or stained glass. Those pe- uh, what do they call us? Sometimes? That, what is your little meeting? Yeah. Oh, how's that, that meeting? You, I said, you mean my church? Yeah, that little meeting you have in your house. Oh, well, maybe if we had more bodies in here, it would be more satisfactory to you. It's what God called me to do. I'm used to Eliab saying the things that Eliab does. And you notice the false accusations? We see how conceited your heart is. We see how wicked you are. You just came down here for the battle. That's what Eliab said. Don't be surprised when people make up things about you because faith's rising in your heart to do things for God. Oh, Matthew only wants to do that because he doesn't want to work. He just wants to go into full-time ministry. Or the only reason Brad's doing that is because whatever, they make up things. That's what the devil does. He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. We're just surprised to see the devil in one of our friends or our family. Got news for you, though. Next week it might be you. So what do you mean? Well, Peter's standing right there. Said, Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? He's at Caesarea Philippi. All right? In the background are all of the Roman gods. The Greek pantheon is there. And they're looking at them in the mountain. And Jesus is standing there. The three tributaries that feed the Jordan are flowing off of a mountain. They're standing in this beautiful, serene environment. And these Jewish guys are standing with all the Greek gods back there. And Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? They answer this and that. And Peter finally says, You're the Christ! You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, wow, Peter. Man, this wasn't given to you by men. It was given to you by my Father in heaven. You're a rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. You know what the next paragraph is? Jesus is talking about crucifixion. Peter says, oh, no, Lord, never, never will they crucify you. He says, get behind me, Satan. See, we want to be filled with God's Spirit. We want to do the works of God. And you need to go ahead and acknowledge, sometimes you're going to be the one that discourages people. Sometimes you're going to be the one that didn't get it right and you get a chance to repent. There was a whole message about that. Teshubah. You turn. You repent. You change your direction. So you hadn't got this right so far. That's okay. Get off that road. Get on another road going the right direction. That's all you have to do. I don't ever want to be that brother that's discouraging. But if God speaks something to David, David Hall, not David the king of Israel, and faith growing in his heart for it, but not in mine, I might sometimes say something that's discouraging. I won't mean to. That's why we need to learn to let our words be spirit-led. In John 7, Jesus' own brothers, this is John 7, 3 through 8, and I'm not, I'm not tell you what it says. Jesus' own brothers said, come on, Jesus. Anybody who wants to be a public figure needs to go up to the feast. Jesus said, man, for you, any time is right. The world accepts you, you're of the world. I, I condemn it, or, or my presence... Uh, in the world condemns it of sin. For me, not any time's right. The time's not right yet. Does that make his brothers horrible people? No, they had a natural thought, didn't they? They had a natural thought, which is, Jesus, if you're going to present yourself as somebody for all of Israel, you need to go where they all are. This is not all that unlike when you set out in your Christian walk and people say things like, an uh, old guy told me one time, a guy uh, slapped me uh, at work. And that was a really hard thing for me. Uh, I mean, you can imagine why, but for my particular background, that was a really hard thing for me because I didn't think I'd have any problem using this guy as a human pogo stick. So it took a lot of restraint not to do anything. And when he slapped me later, this this old worldly wise man, that's a figure in the book Pilgrim's Progress for those of you that have read it, this old worldly wise man pulled me aside and he said, now son, I understand what you're trying to do, but remember, you only got two cheeks to turn. 
You know, that was a good bit of just natural wisdom, right? You know, you can only turn your cheek twice and then you need to do something. That's kind of like what Jesus' brothers were doing. They were giving Him natural wisdom that seems right to them. The problem is, we're called to a higher order of wisdom that makes that look like foolishness. We're called to be led by God's Spirit. Eliab was not necessarily a bad guy. Sometimes the people in your life that are false brothers are not necessarily bad people. They're just helping from their own experience, from their natural selves, to direct you in the way that you're supposed to do something that's supernatural, that they have no concept of. That doesn't make them horrible people. It just makes them somebody you can't listen to. As you're called, you everybody gets to a place, and all of you are called, where you have to make a decision whether or not it's even worth going into this battle, whether or not you're going to do what it takes to win. Then once you've made that decision, you need to expect resistance. And it'll come from the strangest places. In Samson's life, where did all of his resistance come from? (laughs) His own people kept tying him up and handing him over to the enemy. He was called to liberate them. And they kept binding. In Jesus' life, where did his resistance come from? You don't have to answer that. But there was faith rising in David's heart. His brothers there accusing him. But what does verse 32 say? This is right after his brother said all of the ugly things that he could say. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. David's accused of having a wicked heart here. He's accused by his brothers. He's discouraged not only by Goliath saying he's going to feed him to the birds of the air and all of his brothers who are running, but now they're saying, you can't do this, David. You're only here because you want to see the battle. What's wrong with you? As we set out on this faith journey, something has to happen in response to people around you discouraging you. What needs to happen is faith has to rise to meet that challenge. God will often call you to the edge of a riverbank. Read the book of Joshua. Gets right to the edge of the riverbank and says, you're going to cross this. Now, If Bobby was crossing a river, what do you think he would pick as a place to cross the river? Shallow place, right? A narrow place. Why make this hard on yourself? Where do you think God brought the nation of Israel to cross the Jordan for the very first time? To the widest, deepest place in the middle of flood stage. You're going to find out most of the time problems in your life come at flood stage. They don't come in the narrowest, easiest place to step over. Where would the glory in that be? If the problem was within your ability to fix, where would the glory in that be? Your faith must rise to meet the flood stage of life's problems. It's placed in you, Jesus said. He told that woman at the well that the water that He had would become in her a spring welling up to eternal life. There are times you need to back off for a second, pray for a second, and say, now wait a minute, I need to get a right perspective. This trouble is not even worth comparing with God. Faith begins to rise and you begin to go out to meet this challenge because faith is there. We need to possess an increasing rising faith. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. You'll be hanging a right here. All the T's in the New Testament are together, so that kind of helps you. I'm going to be in the 1300s in Thompson Chain. 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, is on page 1316 in the Thompson Chain. Starting in verse 1. I'm sorry, 3. 
Well, it always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in the persecution and trials you are enduring. All of this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And under what circumstances was their faith in love growing? Persecutions, trials, and suffering. We have a victim mentality in this age. We begin, I mean, there are people that I know, none of whom are in here, thank God, that you don't want to ask, how are you doing today? Because you don't have time to hear how miserable, downtrodden, and victimized they've been their whole lives. That is not the voice of faith. Faith takes a trial and turns it into perseverance. Faith takes a persecution and says, wow, the glory of God's resting on my shoulders because the enemy is opposing me. Faith overcomes and increases to meet the challenge. In Christ, that's what we're called to possess. Now it's an act of His grace. He gives it to you, but you've got to be willing to fight for it and latch on to it. Faith doesn't shrink away from the giants in life. Faith says, wow, he's nine feet tall. I wish he was ten. It'd be a bigger miracle when I knocked him down. There was a preacher one time who, this famous guy has gone off to Mexico and uh, has done lots of miracles there. But a guy came into his church one day and said, uh, said, preacher, do you remember me? And the preacher kind of caught off guard and said, no. He said, you and I had a fight one time. He said, well, lay down. I remember you how I left you. <laughs> you know, God calls people sometimes, that are willing to engage the enemy. And there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, and that was obviously the wrong, but hoping if I punctuated it with a little humor, you might remember it. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians 1.5 speaks of an increasing faith and in the midst of trials and persecutions. Matthew 15 is a great story. I think I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. In Matthew 15, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament... We see something. I've been discussing predestination on our website with various people. It's been an enlightening discussion. I want to show you something that I didn't intend to relate to predestination, but you'll understand what I mean here in a minute. Starting in verse 21, on page 1088 in the Thompson chain. This is Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, are those cities in Israel? Hmm? During what time period, Eric? Israel's borders changed all over. These are cities that were Gentile cities. Now, they had an Israelite presence. That's why Jesus was there, okay? Because He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But it was an area where, in the wrong sections, you could encounter a Gentile, Okay? Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She's crying out after us. Does that fit with the things you would normally think about Jesus? It really doesn't, does it? Somebody's there crying out for help. And Jesus is ignoring her. And Jesus' closest friends are saying, send her away, get rid of her. Why on earth would that be? 
Well, as you dig into the background a little bit, you find out that the nationality of this woman was one that was an enemy of Israel. Her national destiny was to be an enemy of Israel. The country that she lived in was at war with Israel all of the time, whether it was stated or not stated. But this woman has something that separates her from this nation, that separates her from her national destiny. Can you imagine being a German, oh, I don't know, around 1933, and going to a Jewish Messiah and asking for help? Would you think you'd be well-received? Why wouldn't you? Why might you not be well-received? Because the nation you're a part of is committing atrocities. And we don't like that because we think of things very individualistically. That's a new phenomenon. In Bible times, people thought of themselves as corporately. When Jesus prayed, He didn't pray, My Father in Heaven, when He taught the church to pray. He said, Pray, Our Father in Heaven. They thought of a nation relating to God a nation having a relationship to God, not necessarily just individuals. So this woman, anyway, Jesus ignores her. Verse 24, he uh, answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The Messiah was supposed to appear in Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Wow, he's ignored her and insulted her now. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Oh, is that humility? Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. She escaped her national destiny because of faith, because she laid aside pride. She was willing to admit that the nation she came from was acting like dogs, but she just wanted to be a child eating the bread that fell from the table. And so she escaped her national destiny. A rising faith will overcome whatever obstacles placed in front of you. You pray, and if Jesus doesn't answer you that day, do you give up? If you don't get what you're after after a week, do you give up? How about a month or a year? This woman was ignored and insulted, but her faith did not quit. And for worse worse than that, she didn't have the heritage that you have. She didn't have a Bible to read about the goodness of God. She didn't have a family surrounding her, loving her, encouraging her to seek God. She came from a nation of dogs. But the faith that was in her would not quit. Her faith rose to meet the challenge. If Jesus had not been somewhat obstinate with her in this way, you wouldn't have seen what just great faith she had, huh? So in a way, you could praise God for His resistance a different perspective on a trial, isn't it? Turn with me back to 1 Samuel 17. Judy, you want to hear about the battle, don't you? You want to hear about the fighting, I know. The Bible's better than watching Braveheart or Gladiator. Not that I'd ever let my son watch those things with my wife watching. <laughs> All right, y'all in 1 Samuel 17? Let's pick back up our story in verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. Now, why might Saul have responded this way? Do you remember the agreement, the problem that we talked about in the very beginning? The agreement that... 
that the Philistines and the Israelites made is, we're going to be on this side, you're going to be on that side, we're going to send two guys down into this valley, right? And when they fight, whoever wins, the other country, not person, country, is going to be their slave. Surely Israel can find somebody better than this kid, huh? I mean, how about Saul? What do you know about Saul from the Bible? He's a head taller than everybody else in Israel. Why didn't Saul go? Everybody was scared. When God calls you to do something, don't be surprised if people don't support it. Don't be surprised at all. God called you to do it. David's faith rose to this occasion, and now something's going to happen. David's going to state his qualifications. Saul said, man, you're not able to do this. Verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. What did David say was the reason that he could go out? He's drawing on his past, the preparation that God had given him. Sometimes when God calls you to do something, all you can think about is all of the things that you have to do to prepare for it. God called you for a reason. If God called Judah to go and do something, it's because within Judah, God is placing the abilities, the talents, the empowerment through way of anointing to do it. Usually what we do is we go grab a book that some other man of God who was equipped for some other purpose wrote. And we try to pattern our lives after Him. Or we go be a part of a church and we look like, act like, and dress like that pastor. We look for any way to go, wow, well, so-and-so has a big church across town. Thousands of people go there. So what he's doing must be the right way, huh? What he's doing must be, I mean, look, God's given him success. So in my calling, what I need to do is be like him, right? Is there not a temptation to do that? God called you to be an evangelist. You think you might be tempted to watch Reinhardt Bunker videos? The purple-haired people on TV or something? <laughs> I mean, come on. This is a natural thing. But David didn't do that. What did he do? He looked back into his own past and his walk with God. The same God. What does he say? He says it here. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He could look back and say, God has delivered me every time in the past. I know He'll deliver me in the future. My walk with God has taught me to do something. It's taught me to trust Him. So I'm not worried about a Philistine. You know, to a little boy, does it really make a difference whether you're fighting a lion or a bear? No, they're both bigger and stronger. So what's Goliath? In your life, once you face down one problem, the next one's easier. You know why? God delivered you from the last one. He said, but this one's bigger. It's nine feet tall. The last one was seven. So what? They were both bigger than you. That's why these stories are in the Bible. Men lived these out to serve you so that you would have inspiration. You would be encouraged. You could face down the giants that are in your life. 
several times in Paul's ministry in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8-11 and then 2 Timothy 4, 16-18, he says things like, the God who's delivered me from my past troubles will deliver me in this situation too. I'm paraphrasing that. But he knew, based on his current walk with God, that in the future, he'd be delivered as well. You have to have a relationship. Your faith has to grow and then your relationship with God will carry you through what you need. You know, when we're talking about this, I don't know, refining of the calling, this idea of your past preparation being what propels you forward, this is where you get the idea of thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, how do thy rod and thy staff comfort me? Shepherds wrote down the events of their lives on their staff. A shepherd could look at his staff and say, when my wife was sick, God healed her. When I lost my whole herd or flock because of bad weather, God still fed me. When I broke my leg, God healed it. When so-and-so attacked me, God caused me to prevail. And you could look back over the events of your life and it would encourage you and carry you even through a valley of death. That was what that was intended to do. Look what the world does, though. Starting in verse... Thirty-seven. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. And he took them off. What the world wants to do and what your temptation to do will be to look at other successful people and try to emulate what they did. We sell books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The Seven Promises of a Promise Keeper. You know, we look at all of these. In fact, if Diana got a revelation that a man named Jabez who was praying, that that somehow related to her life, and I see that it worked for her, what do I do? Run right out and get the book. If I see one church had a G12 vision, or was blessed in cell ministry, or a principle of 12 multiplication, or if one church had the play, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, then that must be what my church should do, right? No, that's like putting on someone else's armor. You're not used to them. They're not for you. Armor was a fitted thing. And if like David you were carved out of stone, a uh, regular... Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking about David Hall. If you had big bulging biceps, and then like me, you were overcome with obesity, our armor wouldn't fit with each other. You would have the morbid obese armor, and you would have the bronze Adonis armor, but they're not fit for each other. You could have competent armor for either person, but the same armor doesn't fit. This is your calling, your anointing. God called Cassidy to be different from Jennifer. He called Mandy to be different from Diana. Bobby to be different from Judah. He called us that way uniquely, and He equips you and arms you in a unique way. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4-5, through Paul says, Our armor is not like the armor of the world. It's a spiritual weapons of righteousness in the right hand and left. 
You don't need to look around you for affirmation that what you're doing is right. You need to look above you and within you. Mandy's smirking at me. I must have said something funny. In the Lord's Prayer, He says, Give us this day our daily bread. We need to seek God for our direction daily. Looking into someone else's life to see what worked for them ten years ago doesn't work. I mean, can you learn from it? Sure. But can you wear it into battle? Not at all. God spoke to you about this giant. The faith's been rising in you to defeat this giant. The brothers have attacked you and you've had to overcome that to fight this giant. What were the others doing while you're doing this? Hiding. Hiding. What did we have the title of this message as? Oh, that's right. I forgot all about that, didn't I? Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. He took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream and he put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. What did David take into battle with him? David took into battle with him the things that had worked for him in his past, the things God had taught him to use. David was not a skilled man with a sword. At least, I'm assuming not. Not a skilled man with a spear or a shield. He was a skilled man with a shepherd's staff. He was a skilled man with a sling, a pouch, in stones, because this was God's unique calling in his life. Now, if you sent Saul out there with those things, he probably wouldn't know what to do with them. That was not his armor. Each man's armor is unique. Well, why do we call this message in the bag? You find out something about these stones that are just like David. Kind of interesting. In the bag. Turn with me to James 1. Keep your finger here. You find the book of James just after Hebrews. First chapter of James in the Thompson chain is on page 1343. Starting in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In your life, the resistance that you have to persevere through polishes you. It forms you. It shapes you into something that is considered mature and complete. Move on from James to Hebrews. Back to your left. Hebrews 10, just a couple pages to your left. Listen to how this says it. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Say, Eric, why on earth are you reading me this? 
Why on earth are we talking about trials? And what's that have to do with a bag and stones? Why are we talking about not giving up meeting together and one another spurring one another on? Where did He get those, those stones, does the Bible say? You can look. It's an open book test. Where did He get them? A stream. Hebrews just said that you were washed in the pure water of God's stream. And you need to consider how you spur one another on. You need to not give up meeting together. How do those stones get smooth in a stream? See, these stones start at one end of the stream. And as the Spirit of God's water flows over them, they tumble onto each other. And as they roll over each other over long periods of time, they rub off each other's rough edges. The reason Hebrews tells a Christian, don't you dare give up meeting together, is because our interaction with each other as we move in the Spirit rubs against each other. And it causes us to get smooth. The reason they're thrown into one bag together is because they were all refined in the same way. They're of one fellowship, one flock. God took them out of the same stream. David took them out of the same stream. Don't be surprised when spending time with me rubs you the wrong way. Maybe it's knocking off a rough edge off of you so that you'll be useful to a shepherd. See, what David is experiencing in his life up to this point is the same thing that those stones experienced. He felt the flow of God's Spirit encouraging him to move in a certain direction. The resistance was shaping him, preparing him, so he didn't end up in somebody else's armor, so he didn't end up in the wrong battle, so that he ended up where God wanted him to. David put stones in the bag, but God put David in his pouch on his side, right next to the shepherd's heart, ready to pull him out, swing him around, and throw him into a battle when the day of God's choosing was. Our preparing can be hard. In fact, Proverbs... 27 verse 17 says it like this. It says, as one man, or as iron sharpens iron. How does iron sharpen iron, by the way? You can't use two things that are of the same density hardly to sharpen each other. So how does that work? They clash and clash and clash, both leaving a little metal on the ground each time until they're shaped. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. When we say, Oh, I got that sale closed. It's in the bag. What we mean is that it's already a done deal. Well, if you allow yourself to go through the process of false brothers, of faith rising to meet the challenge, of not wearing anybody else's armor, but being equipped with the deeds God gave you, then God will place you in His bag. And friends, once you're there, it's as good as done. But it's a hard place to be. You know why? While you're in the stream of life like David was, like these stones, you see what's going on. You may not understand it. You're getting bumped into things left and right and it hurts. And some of you is getting knocked off and left behind constantly. But at least you're moving. You're out in the open. You see what's going on. There comes a time in every Christian's life where God's been shaping you. He's been forming you. And then He sets you aside for a time. It feels like you're in the dark. Don't see your calling happening. The day of battle that you've been preparing for all of your life is suddenly not there. And what do you do? It can feel like a dark, dark time. In the bag, you don't see anything until one day the day of the battle is there. And you know what the bag was useful for? You got right up close to the shepherd's heart. You could hear it beating. You got in step with him. You couldn't see anything else that was going on around you. You just felt the shepherd and a sense of anticipation built and it built for a reason. You know, by the time most American Christians got into this bag, 
That thing's not my bag, baby. Really? <laughs> By the time most American Christians got into this bag, you know what they would be? Victims. They'd be sitting in the bag telling all the other stones about all of the horrible things in their life that got knocked off of them. About how they were hurt how they were scarred, how Eliab had come against them, how Saul thought they couldn't do it, how it would never work. They sit around and tell you all day how bad their lives were, not realizing that each one of those things was shaping them so that they would fly smoothly through the air for a purpose. You know, a stone that wasn't smooth wouldn't fly very straight, would it? Have you ever considered that the trials, the problems that you face, God is shaping you for something larger, a purpose that's greater than yourself? And when we get together in the church, the worst thing you can do is sit around and say, David, my life is so bad. I almost said it pulls a vacuum, but that other word. <laughs> to sit around and say, oh, I have it so bad, it's so hard. Wah, 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 wah. Wambulance. You know? You need to look at these things as an opportunity to persevere, an opportunity to mature, an opportunity to grow, to become a smooth stone so that God can use you. After you've been in the bag for a while, the day of battle comes. Look at Acts 8.26. Keep your finger in Samuel because we're going to go right back there. And we are moments from closing. So fight off the sleepies. <laughs> What's that subway commercial? Nappy time. Acts 8, verse... 26, on page 1218. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, to the desert road, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, unless someone explains it to me? Let me tell you a little bit about Philip's life quickly. Then I'll go right back to David. Philip had been communing with God's Holy Spirit. He'd been in that shepherd's pouch. He'd been shaped as a disciple, having his rough edges knocked off. He had already faced resistance in his life. And his faith has risen to meet the challenge. Now he's right there next to the shepherd, kind of in the dark, not sure what's happening, but listening for the shepherd's voice. He'd been there long enough, communing with God close enough, that when God spoke to him about an Ethiopian eunuch, he ran to do it. See, sometimes we don't understand why things don't happen. Bam, bam, bam. God is conditioning you to hear His voice. He shaped you. Now He's conditioning you so that when you do hear it, you don't sit there and debate it. You don't call a church committee. You don't go to your brother Eliab and ask what he thinks about it. You run to do God's will. Look at how David did this. Verse uh, 41, after he picks up the smooth stones from the stream. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield-bearer in front of him kept coming close to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Do you hear David's experience has taught him a proper perspective? The man's insulting David, but David saw it as an insult to God. The man, his armor bearer, and all of his weaponry is there. But David sees himself standing with God. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give, it, he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. There's two kinds of running that can occur in a battle and one of them is not good. One of the reasons I was excited to start this ministry with Matthew Pirro is I knew that in a battle he would run, but that it wouldn't be the wrong way. Everybody else in Israel is horrified. Everybody else in Israel is hiding on the other side of a mountain. But because God has called this man, because he's responded to the call, because faith is rising in his heart and he's allowed himself to be shaped as a smooth stone, because he's been in that shepherd's bag for a while now, not seeing anything happening yet, but waiting in a sense of anticipation built so that when that giant was there to intimidate him, to lie to him, he ran to meet him head on. He'd been conditioned to do what God told him to do when God told him to do it. Just like Philip. Rather, Philip was just like David. You need to recognize these stages of our lives so that you don't despise being a young boy. So that you don't despise being where you are in life. God is using them. God is using every bit of it for your good because you're called according to His purpose, just like the nation of Israel. We finished reading this story and we're going to close. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. I wonder what it would have been like if that stone had jumped out of the river before it got smooth. might have veered off and missed. If it had hit him, it might have had rough edges and not gone in. Those are like Christians that just will not stick with God's program in and out of the stream of God's Spirit over and over and over. So they end up rough burrs instead of smooth stones, stabbing everybody around them. Sometimes they even leave scars on smooth stones. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. (laughs) That's my kid's favorite part. I don't know why. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout. I'm going to save you the rest of the story. We can get down to the last few lines. Something's important here. All of the armies of Israel saw this act of faith. They saw what happened. And they repented of their cowardness. They ran out and they too joined the battle. This one man made a difference for a whole nation. But that's not really what's cool. 
What is really cool is as he's carrying the head of the Philistine around with him, people began to say one thing over and over and over. Listen to this. Start in verse 50. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. They already said that a couple of times. Here's one time where I'm picking up. Verse 57. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Well, why do I point that out? When they saw that he was just a boy and that he did this great thing, they wanted to know who his daddy was. They assumed that it had to have something to do with his daddy. When people see you as something that is flawed, something that maybe is not up to the task, and yet you prevail, they want to know who your father is. They want to know how you were able to do it. And they'll assume that it has more to do with your father in heaven than your natural abilities on earth, which is the goal of every Christian. In John 14, Jesus said, The prince of this world, Goliath, he's coming for me. But he has no hold on me. The world's going to learn that I love the Father. And I do exactly what he said. When Jesus laid down his life and then was raised out of the grave, it caused everybody who comes to him to praise his Father for doing such a great thing. Our lives are about bringing glory to the Father. And it comes from being in the bag. You don't get to the bag. You don't get it in the bag unless you're willing to go through the trials. Let your faith rise to meet the occasion and get knocked good and square sometimes to get those rough edges off of you. But on that glorious day, He will take you out, hurl you through the air, and you will knock down giants and people will say, Who's your daddy? And you can point and say, Yahweh God birthed this in me. It wasn't my own vision. It was His. And He pulled it off. Then what do you think Eliab's doing? What do you think the false brothers were doing? What are the Philistines doing? You prove God right and every man a liar. That's what this thing's about, is bringing glory to God. It's not about David killing a giant. It's about people asking, who is your father? 